Step right up, it's Nailed, a Halo by Halo journey through the music of Nine Inch Nails. And I'm Blake. I'm Jessica. And we are starting on something very special this time, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> something big, something massive. Yes. Something colossal. Something, a big something kahuna. A big, a big man with, no, a big kahuna. Um. <laughs> There used to be these it's, gigantic sodas at like come and go, or get and go that were like I swear to you like two feet tall and they were called like the Big Kahuna. Oh my god! That's why I said that. Sorry, it's just a gigantic, <laughs> ridiculous, ridiculous drink from when I was a kid. So this album is as big as that drink. Yes, and it's the big one. We finally got to the big one. It's the Citizen Kane of all industrial albums. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it goes beyond even the label of industrial. It's transcends. It's more than that, and we'll be talking about what it is for the next I don't know six episodes or so. This is a mini series. Yes. So we're now doing a podcast within a podcast called Halo Eight: The Downward Spiral. (laughs) Do we have our own little title for it? Or I just called this the Genesis. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I just wrote prologue, but Genesis is probably. Better. It's probably actually prologue. It's probably better. Preamble. Precursor. Uh, Not really precursor, but prologue. Genesis uh, is good. So um, we'll be doing episodes about the songs of the Downward Spiral, right? Yes. But. Because there's just a lot of, there's a lot of information about this. And there's a lot of stuff to cover. And I thought the best way to divvy it up would be like an introductory prologue episode like this Mm -hmm. and then we would go through the album but we would do the songs in the order they appear on uh the vinyl reissue which is still the same order as normal but But we are breaking them up by because by side there are four sides on the definitive edition vinyl Mm -hmm. so we'll do an episode per side and hopefully it won't be you know a Mm -hmm. two or three hour episode each time but maybe it will who knows maybe people want that i don't know But this one is not even getting to the songs yet, right? It's the background of the album. Yeah. And just uh, the result of the millions of hours of research Jess has been putting into this. If you count reading Helter Skelter, this has been like my whole summer. Oh, my God. By the way, I'm not a big like true crime reader. I watch the occasional doc. I dabble, you know, like I watch the occasional documentary. I listen to the occasional podcast. I'm not like a... Uh, like a my favorite murder diehard. You know what I mean? Like I'm not a podcast. Not a, a murderino. See? Didn't <clears throat> think of the term. Uh, but I read Helter Skelter and yeah. uh, I thought it was a really boring book. So skip it. <laughs> it looks really long. Um, it's like 600 pages. That made me think of something. What? Um, when Trent was asked about, you know, recording in the Tate House in, in the 90s, um, he said... That previously he had read all the books on uh, on Charles Manson and stuff, and that that that's his word. I've read all the books. You think mm-hmm. he? I assume he read Helter Skelter. You think that was one of them? If he said he read all the all books, all the books. I mean, it has that's to the be. big book, that's right? The big one. That's so, like the big Kahuna of true. Okay, crime we're books. done with <laughs> Big Kahuna's retired for this miniseries. Okay. We can't do that. <laughs> um, Charles, Charles, this miniseries is about Charles Manson. Okay. Mm-hmm. Before, you know, the story is he didn't know 
when an agent showed him the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was interested in true crime uh, and the Manson murders and had read up on it. And But I guess, you know, didn't recognize the house by sight, apparently. I guess there weren't enough pictures. Were there a lot of pictures in that helter I mean, there were pictures in it, but they're black and white. They're not high-quality resolution. The house probably looks a lot different uh, in the early 90s and a lot of the, uh, than it did in 69. I mean, there were like... um. There were some, like, I almost said establishing shots. I mean, there were some photos kind of of the complete there, home. But there's it's, a great establishing shot in the gave up video. <laughs> there you go. Of the outside of the. And he he did he did bring up how beautiful the house was. and It is. And pointed out that, you know, it's not like it's a haunted castle that you walk up to and it's like lightning strikes and it's Stephen King's house. It's <laughs> it's a beautiful Hollywood house. It's nestled far away. Rich it's, people live there. Yeah. But secluded, it's beautiful. He went on to say, view. you know, it's just the vibes that are weird. It's not the house. I wonder if <laughs> the vibes would have been weird if he had never known. I, I doubt it. I think the mind has to know that, that this is my take on it. But the mind has to know what it is before you can. I bet a lot of people would say that you'll feel the vibes, those ghostly vibes. Maybe. Um, even Oscar's if you feeling them right Oscar now. Oscar is. Who do you think died in this duplex? Mini cats. Oscar is <laughs> Oscar's on his own downward spiral right now, and he is spiraling, and it's not good to hear that shit. He won't shut up. Buddy, sit down. Okay. So I'm sorry I talked about the Tate house so long. Yeah, you probably you, have better ways to better things to spend our time on. But we'll get to the house. Got ahead of me. me. Uh, yeah, I just want to say that. I'm like terrified to tackle this, so be patient. Well, everybody is uh, I, uh, everybody was super nice online, and they're really rooting for us. So <laughs> okay, we're gonna don't fuck it up. They're gonna like it, I think. Okay, well, no, it's not don't fuck it up. It's that they're rooting for us. No, I'm saying that to myself. Okay, well, we'll do fine. Okay, so this Halo, guess what? There's another press release for it. Ooh, do you need to read it? I think I saw this one. I mean, it's been passed around a lot, but yeah, go ahead. Okay. The Downward Spiral was conceived by Trent Reznor as a complete work. It is in your best interest to listen to the record as a whole rather than a mere collection of songs. There are linear themes running throughout the album. These themes address someone who systematically examines and discards all facets of their life from career, relationships with people, and their belief systems to try to find out about themselves and why they feel a certain way. The downward spiral portrays a person's need to get away from the pain by indulging in things that are not necessarily right for them, whether it's through drugs, religion, or self-destruction. The downward spiral is a bleak, desperate, tension-filled recording. Your perception of this record will mutate with repeated listens. That Well, that's a presumptuous thing to say at the end, but it's true. <laughs> it, it really is. Um, I've been listening to the album more than 20 years now. And yeah, it's, I mean, we listened to it tonight. Mm -hmm. We sat down, we listened to the Dolby stereo mix on the DVD side of the dual disc. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sounded pretty good. And yeah, I'd say that my perception continued to mutate. There's always new things to hear. Um, But yeah, I like Broken, another one of these very high-minded, I don't know, what do you make of this, this press sheet? I think every man should write press sheets. <laughs> I don't. I think now. Like this. Yeah, maybe now it's not a thing, and they're just like, "Look, it's another fucking killer's album. Take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. We don't give a shit." It's Lana Del Rey posting a cover for her album 
and then getting made fun of so bad that she has to redo the album cover. She made the right choice. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to go off on this tangent, but I think she made that album cover on her phone. Mm -hmm. Just fucking around. The original. Yes. Yeah. And then was like, oh, that was just a joke, guys. We had a real artist do a real cover, a real photographer. Anyway. No more talking about Blue Bannister. Yeah. <laughs> so already we've got we've got a concept. So he's telling us that we've got a concept album on the, on the way. Very AOR, right? What does AOR stand for again? That's album-oriented rock. Which also, was something that Reznor hated at one point. Did he say he did? Yeah. Well, he sure as hell became the king of album-oriented rock in the maybe, 90s, didn't he? Maybe he called it dinosaur AOR rock when he was referring to one of his early bands. Even even now, his music continues to be extremely album-oriented in an age when music is less and less. So, I mean, look at year zero, for God's sake. That's as concepty as he's ever gotten. Yeah. But this is a, a whole different concept. And I'm sure we'll get into mm-hmm. the real dirty details of what that's all about. Okay. Well, here we go. We're going to start with uh, how how this whole thing came to be. The seeds that were planted in Reznor's brain. So <laughs> okay. he said like after Broken came out that he wanted to start work right away on a real album. So previously he had Pretty Hate Machine, which does that feel like an album in the way that this does to you? It's an album. I, it doesn't feel like a big, dramatic concept album like Downward Spiral mm-hmm. does. But it, it is definitely an album. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, it's yeah. It's weird that the Downward Spiral is his second album, his second LP. Mm-hmm. You yeah. could call Broken an album, but it's also an EP. Yes. So, yeah. So, um, he said that he had been working on the idea of the Downward Spiral in his head for a while Without really writing any songs, he just had, like, the concept. And originally, his pretentious aspirations were to make the dreaded concept record with a film that went with it. Hmm. He said that Derek Darman was interested in doing something. And he said, again, you could maybe hark back to The Wall as my inspiration. Because, as we know, The Wall, album, movie. It was a big, big influence on him. Yes. You know, I've only seen The Wall once. The movie. I've listened to the album before. I've never seen the movie, and Jess is going to make me watch it for preparing for this mm-hmm. miniseries. Mm-hmm. I think it's important. So, anyway, when he was interviewed by Spin Magazine later, they asked him, like, what were like what was, like, the crude stick figure version of The Downward Spiral like before, like, you even had written any songs? And he said, well, I wrote down a bunch of topics I wanted to address. The key events in my life. A mom and dad getting married because she's pregnant. Weird displaced memories that conjure up emotions. Not always upsetting or unhappy. I remember walking home from piano lessons at age 10, 12 with a weird euphoric feeling. So Hmm. he just took all these kind of random snippets of memories, I guess, and started kind of writing them down, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So he said that the initial idea was kind of forming after Lollapalooza. This is when he began suffering from depression really badly and it was also kind of the beginning of his dependency on alcohol and other drugs uh it wasn't as full-fledged as it would become it was just kind of a maybe a self-medicating or just young partying kind of thing um that would be typical touring is uh hard yeah 
And uh, he didn't really want to, like, do any kind of, like, antidepressants. Like, he didn't want to take, like, Prozac or something. No, I read that recently, and I was like, damn, he just wants to uh, white-knuckle it, huh? Yeah. I mean, that was also so new, and people yeah. did kind of look down upon that was it. A, yeah, you're right. That was a prevailing attitude at the time. We weren't as used to the conversation about mental health. And I feel like mental health, honestly, at least in the culture at the time, like in the 90s, ladies were kind of dominated by women. I mean, it could be a whole different, like, but Elizabeth Wurzel wrote Prozac Nation. You know, like there's, mm. there are a lot of books by different authors that address like mental health and uh, mm-hmm. just memoirs that talk about their experiences with these new kind Girl of treatments. Girl Interrupted. Mm-hmm. I just you like. Well, I was thinking I, of like, uh, and and now <laughs> like now the boy bell jar. Yeah. Anyway, like there are a lot of. Sorry. You're missing all my jokes. <laughs> I got that one. <laughs> You're welcome. So you paid me back for mine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, the bell jar. Sure. So that was way before, was, but anyway. He's just raw dogging reality, mm-hmm. and that is a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to navigate depression, no meds. I mean, shit. No meds. Just booze. Booze. Not good. Not good. Wine, women, and song. He was still able to get inspired and and create things. Well, at first, uh, he said when he was kind of in initial phases of writing this, he had a writer's block. And so he called up his pal, just his good pal, Rick Rubin. You know, your buddy, Rick Rubin. Just phoned him up. Hip-hop producer extraordinaire at this time. <laughs> had, had he done, I don't know if he had done other things, but I think he was more known for hip-hop then. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. so sorry. <laughs> um, he said um, that he was completely bummed out. Rick asked me what my motivation for doing this record was, and I told him the truth just to get it fucking done. And he said, that's the stupidest fucking reason for doing an album I've ever heard. Don't do it. Don't do it until you make music that it's a crime not to let other people hear. And so Reznor started thinking about it and realized that Ruben was right. You know, he is in a really fortunate position, right? Mm-hmm. He's got a decent budget for the record. Oh, He's yeah. got awesome equipment. He's got a studio that he built himself. And for the first time, like recording music was his job. It wasn't something he worked on in his spare time. It wasn't something yes. he had to work on, you know, secretly, like this was something that he could just really sit down and have all the time and all the resources to really work on this album. This is the dream. This, it would be the dream for me, at least. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, he said he got his head straight, started noodling around with ideas and computers, and five or six months later, he had two-thirds of a record written. So, And this was, I don't know, sometime in 93, probably? Probably. It could have been even like late 92 or something. Yeah, I think like late 92, most of the year of 93 was spent making the downward spiral. Yeah, I think he even predicted that the downward spiral would come out like in what, fall of 93 initially or yeah, summer of 93? I believe he like put it on was that a press sheet for Broken is like downward spiral might probably be out by 93. Yeah. But it took a little longer. Um, I've read a little bit about, you know, he was messing around and then in that damn home studio for a long time <laughs> yeah <Just> running cables <laughs> i know what it's like so uh talk about the sonic inspirations very briefly right mm-hmm. so there are two main albums that Reznor says inspired the downward spiral and that would be david bowie's low and pink floyd's the wall so that's well i 
do we want to talk more about that? I listened to Low again last night. I just sat there and listened to it. It's usually Jessica that's playing it. Mm-hmm. Just Jess was like, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I was. But I was I was like trying to understand like how does this lead to the downward spiral, right? Okay. Well we can I honestly think it'd be fun to do a bonus episode on Low. Uh just to give me an excuse to talk about it. <laughs> But uh, we have like we have like 75 bonus episodes lined up. I don't know when <laughs> you think we're going to do this, but we'll find time. Low doesn't sound like TDS. No, um, it's, but, it's more in the way it was recorded. Right. Yeah. They're experimenting with electronics like that's yes. all low is. But low also has like kind of themes of um, it's actually, I think, a very sad album. Yeah. <laughs> if you actually listen to the lyrics, but it's set. To, like, so many different kind of genres that he's playing with, right? So, like, kind of ambient, you know, kind of, um, like, more experimental, like, European-type pop and rock. And just, you know, all the the synthiness of yeah. it. And um, we know whose fault that is. Yeah. Brian Eno. Again, as a quick aside, I think it's kind of a crime that Reznor and Eno, to my knowledge, have never worked together. What? I, I was thinking the same happened? thing last night. He worked with freaking... Adrian Bellew. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Bellew? Adrian Bellew. Bellew, mm-hmm. Bellew like Bellew. Jungle Book. Yeah. He's worked, obviously worked with Bowie. He never worked with Brian Eno? Everybody's worked with Eno. Maybe there were professional he's with, differences. He worked with Lindsey Buckingham of all yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Like, Eno's still alive, right? Yeah. They've they've got to make this happen before Eno dies. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I was thinking great. the same thing, though. But also, the album, like I said, was really, it has a lot of sad moods. I mean... Just to give a very brief history, basically Bowie just moved to Europe to get clean. Um, when he was recording Station to Station, he was just doing so much coke that he was basically in a psychotic, like a psychosis, like a oh. just a, a very uh, delusional state, right? So, so why he went to Berlin? Well, he went to France for a while to with Iggy to kick kick the drugs, oh, and yes. then they ended up going to Berlin. And so some of the album I think was recorded there, and the rest was recorded in Berlin. Um, and we know Iggy was a, yeah. a bit of an influence too. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of Iggy, sure on TDS, I should say. Okay, so uh, anyway, this was really kind of Bowie's first explorations with like electronic and ambience, and the album was, I think, critically just panned. No one liked it, but um, I think if, if it came out today, Pitchfork would be like eleven. 11 <laughs> Then we got to crank it all up. It to seems the like something critics should love, but yeah. I guess they had different ideas then. Yeah. But um, yeah, so there's just, I think part of it is also, and there's a quote about this somewhere. Um, and Corain kind of talked about like the, the use of synthesizers in low to build soundscapes that kind of made the album very atmospheric and, and kind of disquieting, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of lightness because there are some songs that are very poppy, but when you listen to the oh, lyrics, yeah. there's a very... Be My Wife? <sighs> Be My Wife That's a great is so song. good. But well, the it... lyrics are kind of devastating, right? I just thought it was about a man asking <laughs> a girl to be his wife. I don't know. I just think about uh, the chorus where he's like, I've lived all over the world. I've left every place. That almost sounds like, you know, it could be a TDS lyric. Could be. Anyway. Or fragile. So, uh, second one, The Wall. Um, the main things from The Wall, like Blake is always like, I thought The Wall inspired, like, The Fragile. I was just being an idiot because it's a double album and The Fragile's a I mean, I'm sure album. it still is. There's elements yeah, of it of there. 
But um, so what he used in this was kind of the idea of having like a, a narrator, like a concept that kind of revolved around a narrator um, to kind of like articulate the sense of like frustration and alienation. And so that's how he built the downward spiral, right? We have a narrator who's kind of progressing. Mm-hmm. So um, the wall is just like a, it's a rock opera and uh, basically Roger Waters wrote like the main character whose name is Pink. Uh, he based it on himself and Sid Barrett, who was a former member vocalist of Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it was just kind of uh, after their first big stadium tour, he was just kind of disgusted <laughs> with like the lack of real uh, feeling and communication with fans because it is a stadium. You know, mm-hmm. you're not getting the same kind of vibes and just the way people acted. And so anyway, um, that was just kind of what he took with him and kind of made this, this album about like, just basically a self-imposed like exile and from the world. Did. And of course they, <laughs> they went on a tour where they built a wall between them and the audience literally, uh, as a gimmick. And so instead of figuratively, it's literal. Right. Yeah. That would be there. There's an element of heartbreak there, uh, on both sides. If you're a band and you've gotten too, you've become too successful. You're a victim of your own success. You can never again play a small club or theater for your fans. It, at a certain level of success, it always has to be a stadium. Yeah. Unless um, and, you completely melt down and lose everything. If you, yeah, like go into total failure mode, you mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like if you're canceled or some shit. <laughs> But like Nine Inch Nails are, have been at that level since the 90s, um, and I'm sure he feels that. And then also, as fans, like we saw Phoebe Bridgers, for example, in an amphitheater, which mm-hmm. was way overbooked, mm-hmm. overcrowded. I think there were like 7,000 people there. Yeah, in a 5,000 uh, venue. cap venue. Um, well, probably never again get the chance to see her in any sort of small setting. I mean, that was probably the smallest that we will ever get to see her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it wasn't, we couldn't even get close. But like, yeah, you'll never get to be up close and personal with Phoebe. It'll, it, that impersonality. Anyway, that's way too much of a tangent. But yeah, the isolation is something to, to keep in mind. Definitely. So let's talk about where it was recorded. Mm-hmm. It was recorded. I know where it was recorded. What's the address? It's, what is it? Cielo Drive? Mm-hmm. C-A-O? I don't know how you say Cielo? it. Cielo? Cielo. It's in... Uh, Bel Air or some shit. Is that right? <laughs> I or don't no? know. Beverly Hills. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. So it's rich people, LA. Mm-hmm. It's 150 CLO Drive. I hope I'm saying that right. 150? 150. 10050. Oh. oh, okay. Okay. Ah, because they do the crazy uh, five digit addresses there. Yeah. They do that in different states. Did I they... say that right? 150? I think you did. Err. I don't. I mean, how would you say? Would would people just be like, "I live at one zero zero five zero? I don't know, that. like because we've never had to deal with that here yeah. in Missouri. Like where here, we're just like, do, I live at you know eleven six five. Yeah, we do. We or, do four digits. Yeah. Uh, a California person or a person from a state that does five digits. Let I us know. probably could just rush a documentary or something. Let's, probably would have said it. In but there. from now on, we can just say the pig mm-hmm. or pig, as gross as that is. <laughs> Um, that is what they called it and what it's called in the liner notes and everything. Mm-hmm. In the credits to the, to the records, they don't say the Tate house, they say pig, mm-hmm. but the, that wasn't, that was the main place, but not the only place, only place, right? I think there was one other, like maybe LA studio. 
Yeah, I, I think a little bit of stuff was done at A and M, a big ass mainstream LA studio. Mm-hmm. What I read kind of made it sound like they just snuck in, recorded a few drum hits, and snuck out. Okay, <laughs> I'm not really sure what. <laughs> and there was something else. Um, hang on, I I have it. Okay, I'm going to eat those last olive. Okay. But I want more olives. So and by the way, I'm not drinking a Trentini. I'm just eating the yeah, olives. We're just eating olives. We're being, <laughs> we need to be sober we're for this. We're being good, yeah. Okay. Well, Another big Hollywood one, the record plant. The mm. record plant has a really cool look. Um, it's got the these wood oh, diagonal slats. That is cool. That looks like my dream house, kind of. It's, it's really cool. Um, I think it's still there. It's just changed hands many times, like everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're still recording. Big records there and A and M. So, sorry. No, you're good. If you uh, on Wikipedia, if you click Le Pig, which is what it says for the studio, Le mm-hmm. Pig, on the TDS wiki, tap that. It takes you to the wiki for one zero zero five zero Cielo Drive. There's not a wiki for Le Pig. Mm, okay. Just to redirect. Yes. So, he actually set up the studio in the living room. And that is the room where Sharon Tate and J.C. bring her friend were stabbed to death and were murdered. And he says, upon renting the place, which is what you talked about, I've honestly heard a couple different versions of this story. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, like, what is true. But um, when I was reading Steiner's book, uh, Into the Never, which is all about the downward spiral, uh, he said that... Adam Steiner. Uh, allegedly, like, Reznor toured all these different homes, like 15 houses in one day. And after a deal on a house in New Orleans fell through, because I think he originally he wanted to go. Yep. wanted to go. They went with this house. And when they were recording parts of Broken in Miami, one of the studios where they secretly were recording this, the EP, he got a rental agreement. And that rental agreement arrived with a legal disclosure that identified the house as the Tate house. Oh. Mm-hmm. So it was something that the real estate people did not want to reveal, according to this story. And that, I mean, that I mean, tracks. I guess legally you have to at some point, like when you're signing No, I release, mean, when but... they're when they're trying to sell the house. Mm-hmm. Or rent. Yes. It may, yeah, it makes sense for most, for most buyers. I bet they weren't bringing it up. Mm-hmm. It was sitting there for a while. They were trying to sell it or lease it or whatever mm-hmm. they were doing. Yeah. I'm sure it wasn't something they wanted to bring up. No. So anyway, Reznor has said, um, he told Rolling Stone that it's coincidence that when he found out what it was, it was even cooler, though, you know. Um, he said, but it's a cool house anyway, and on top of that, has an interesting story behind it. The whole thing of living out here, I didn't even think about it. I didn't go on a press campaign saying, I live in Sharon Tate's house, and I'm really spooky. So, right. But yeah. when the press found out, like... They were Trent, like, guess who lives in the exactly. Red Tate house and is really spooky? Prince, this guy. <laughs> exactly. Prince of Darkness, Trent Reznor, blah, 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 Tate murders. Yeah. He didn't, yeah, he didn't go around bragging. He, everything I've read, he has some mixed feelings about it. You know, he yeah. talks about. I think he kind of thinks it's kind of cool just to be in that. Yeah. He, he a place with like a history and yes. a story. And obviously. Despite the macabre. Yeah. We know he was into true crime. We know he was into reading about serial killers, stuff like that. And just the vibes. Once again, it's all vibes. Mm-hmm. You're a young rock star. Uh, but also he goes on to say that, you know, there he doesn't obviously doesn't condone <laughs> the murders. 
Well, yes, he does say that. So um, um, he does talk about the vibes, though. Um, yeah. To Kerrang, he said, if there was any sort of vibe, then it was one of quiet, maybe sadness. But the nice thing about the house was that I wouldn't leave it for weeks. The house was on its own, gated. And once I realized I hated L.A., there was never <laughs> any reason to leave. That perhaps added to the isolation and claustrophobia of the record. That kind of sounds great to me as someone who does not like to go out or go anywhere. This is tracks. Yes, this is um, true. I... Yeah, you can be closed off in your own world. And, and then it's a pretty world. It's a beautiful world. Yeah, and oh, he he also talked about how, like, from the front door, you had one of the most beautiful views of of L.A. you could ever get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a walkthrough, too, that some people took around the time that they were recording this movie. Um, Steiner has a link to it in, like, the notes section of his book, but I can also maybe, we can put it in the liner or in the show notes or something. Okay. Some old, old, old handheld camcorder footage of people walking around through the the Tate house where the studio yeah. is and stuff. Were you going to talk about ghosts? Not really. Uh, oh. I was just going to talk about what they called the studio. They called it Pig after um, the graffiti, I guess you could say, that was written on the door in Sharon Tate's blood. The mm-hmm. mem- members of the family had written Pig uh, and uh, I've heard that that like kind of stained the wood. And even though they painted over it, like you could still see it. Like oh, a, if you God. knew to look for it, like maybe it's one of those things. Uh, God, that's like so mm-hmm. if you so, <laughs> that's so demonic. Yeah. But like. after they were done recording, Trent took the door down and it became the door to his studio in New Orleans. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a little macabre. That's mm-hmm. a little grisly right there. Yes. Um, so I, I might I might understand the reasons for doing it. Um, it's a piece of history, I guess, if it's something you're into. They yeah. They also said that they would blame. They said they had lots of electrical problems, and look, that's just that's just working in a studio. I, <laughs> but they did blame it on ghosts whenever that would happen, whenever the studio would lose power mm-hmm. or whatever. Or whenever like your friend comes over to make you a chicken and it never bakes. <laughs> like when Tori Amos. Oh. Yeah. Did we are did we already talk about it? I don't that? think we talked about it, but there's like a story that I can't remember if she told it Tori or Tori did it, visit. But... Oh, we did talk about her going well, the past the mission. Mm-hmm. I believe Trent did his part at uh the pig. Mm-hmm. And so Tori visited there. I think they just hung out cuz they were buddies anyway yeah. at yeah, the time. Sure. So anyway, allegedly she Made him a, a chicken and it never baked. <laughs> I think. They blamed it on ghosts. They blamed it on ghosts. My theory is she just didn't turn the oven on. <laughs> I mean, like probably... a ding dong. She's like, Been there, buddy. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. you're supposed to preheat that thing. Anyway. But anyway. Um, so uh, quickly, just to talk about the, the house in early 1995, um, 150 Cielo Drive was sold and the owner tore it down. And they told, I think this was from the Los Angeles Times, uh, that we went to great pains to get rid of everything. There's no house, no dirt, no blade of grass remotely connected to Sharon Tate. Wow. A new house was built in its place, but the address was changed to 166 Cielo Drive. So they didn't even keep the wow. house number. Yeah. That's weird that you you have to petition the city to do that. Like I'm not certain. That takes some doing, I think. Yeah, um, yeah the way they've the way the band has told it. They make it make it sound like 
All right, the record's done. We are packing our stuff and leaving. And on our way out the door, we see a bulldozer coming. That's exactly And it yeah. demolishes the house as we drive away. Like it was apparently think, that quick. I don't know if it was that quick because it that said quick, it was 1995. Yeah, okay. But, you know, it was almost like that. <laughs> yes, almost. Um, so to kind of just kind of come full circle on the Sharon Tate thing, um, later Trent recounted a story to Rolling Stone. I think this was when he had uh, done the Lost Highway soundtrack and... Uh, had a cover story with him and yeah. David Lynch. Anyway, um, he was talking about meeting Sharon Tate's sister. And he said that, you know, he said she lost her sister from a senseless, ignorant situation. But I don't want to support. I went home and I cried that night. It made me see that there's another side to things, you know. That's what sobered me up. Realizing that what balances out the appeal of the lawlessness and the lack of morality. And that whole thing is the other end of it. The victims who don't deserve that. Um, and I read that he took the door down. After yeah. that, I don't know what happened to the door, but he no longer kind of romanticized that. Right. Once you're staring the grief in the face, mm-hmm. how could you? Yeah. Well, he, you know, he was like, what if it, what if my sister, you know, had been yeah. killed? And just things you don't think about when you're on the other side, I guess. And people, people grow up and <laughs> mature like we were all dumb and in our 20s and did regretful things. Or had regretful attitudes, mm-hmm. but those those change as you grow and or mature. Said I, things that you didn't even realize were maybe yeah. insensitive, or oh yeah, yeah. And that's true of for us and Trent Reznor and most people. We're all learning. We're all just the good ones are always learning. That's what I'm gonna say. Most of us don't buy a murder house, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> we have things we regret. Yeah. Well, we also don't have the money, so let's talk about the money. The mon- oh, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I know much about this. Yeah, so the rent for the Tate house was $11,000 a month. Jesus. Yeah, I wonder what? how much it would be in today's dollars, like 20000 I don't I don't even know. It's crazy that it was, I guess they, the plan was to only lease it for the time that they were making the record, so there was no point in buying it. I don't know how much it would be worth, but... But that's still like... The recording took over 18 months. How much money is that? Jesus. I didn't do the math. I forgot. So 18 months rent at 11,000 a month is almost 200 grand, 198,000. Okay. I wonder how much that house would have been sold for. It's hard to tell from pictures how big it is. And it's mostly the the piece of land that is like invaluable. You know, it's like priceless uh, it's a multi-million dollar house, obviously. I don't know how many millions, but 200000 just in rent. And that's without buying any of the copious gear that they loaded in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because he got to buy all the, the and gear they, and built the studio. Yeah. They And they bought gear. They decided it would be more cost effective to buy console, studer tape machines, and all the other gear more cost-effective to buy than to rent. So God knows what all that was. And, you know, dozens of guitars and keyboards to smash when it didn't work. Um, an article from 88, <laughs> the first line, the Tate murder house is in escrow, with an exclamation <laughs> point. Um, a $2 million listing. And that was in 88? $2 million in 88. $2 million is like... I don't know, a three-bedroom house here in Springfield, Missouri, <laughs> like with our horrible, horrible housing market. Skeptics doubted that the the uh, murder house would sell in 88. They, they underestimated the drawing power of 
the spooky story, I guess. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, um, basically, I think the initial setup was three months that it took to get the like all the gear set up, ready to go, ready to start. And they were continually fixing that over the course of the next 18 months. Mm -hmm. So yes. it wasn't just set up um, and, and you're done. It's any time that something breaks down or we have to reroute something, we are not in a major, we're not in a record label's Hollywood studio. We don't have employees on hand um, who know the studio who can fix it. We have to do it all ourselves. He emphasized in interviews how things took longer because they had to do it. They had to fix everything themselves when something broke down. Yep. You know, the professionals weren't weren't standing yeah. by. Well, they were on their own. Yeah. So when he was recording, he said that it was a very unpleasant experience that he came up with the analogy that it was like climbing down a manhole and pulling the cover over my head. When I'm in the studio, I'm in there all the time, easily a minimum of 14 hours a day. So when he started recording, he said that the self-destruct button was pushed when I first started writing. There was a sense I couldn't fit in anywhere. I couldn't relate to people. I felt alone. I felt angry about it. I felt like I was heading down into something that wasn't going to have a good ending. That ended up being addiction. Its claws were in me, but it hadn't fully revealed itself yet. Hmm. And Vrena has said that when it came to like writing the lyrics, that Trent would literally lock himself in the house by himself, Whoa. sometimes for days at a time, and just write. And only when he felt that it was that he was comfortable enough to um, to like show them the lyrics would he emerge and let Vrena or Flood read what he had written. And he said that that it was probably his way of venting all those negative sides that everyone had a little bit of inside of them. <sighs> but also... Damn, well, that's heavy. Um, yeah. Also, can I clarify, Chris Frenna, um, just as, as we're talking about personnel here, Flood is the other producer on this mm -hmm. record in addition to, to Trent. Mm -hmm. Chris Frenna, of course, there had been their drummer, um, continued to do drum stuff, on this record, in general, being an assistant and will and sample puller, well, mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah. So, while they were recording the Downward Spiral, um, Jeff Ward, who was a former member of the band, uh, killed himself. So the right. album is dedicated to him. Um, it says, "We miss you, Jeff Ward." I guess it's not necessarily dedicated, but. So it's a, yeah, the dedication at the end of the liner notes. You're right. Um, and so Ward, for people who might not know, he replaced Vrenna. Vrenna and Reznor had a brief falling out really? right after Lollapalooza. And Ward came in and took over the drums uh, for Vrenna. Yeah, he began on the Sin Tour and did a lot of the 1991 shows from information I found anyway. Wow. But he also worked with a lot of like kind of who's who of like industrial bands like ministry yeah. um revolting cox lard um and a lot of artists like richard patrick was friends with them he dealt with his death in the filter song it's over um at a like ministry dedicated filth pig to him Lard also for their album, Pure Chewing Satisfaction. Um, one thing that Jeff Ward might be known for is I believe he did the impersonation of the cop on the 1000 Homo DJs track, Hey Asshole. Yeah. 
anyway, he uh, took his life. Uh, he uh, he used uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, a lot of it had to do with his struggles with addiction, with heroin. He couldn't kick it. Jesus. So in the middle of, was it in the middle of making this album or was it before? I don't know. No, it was while they were recording it. Yeah, so that's and Brenna even, was back. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Cause, yeah, in the middle of recording this dark album that mm-hmm. deals with, you know, themes of suicide. And addiction. A, yeah, a real, the real thing happens. So, I don't know. It's just a fucked up thought. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, Trent has said that he wanted to write about, when he was writing, trying to get the lyrics out. What he wanted to really write about was someone who was decaying, someone who was looking for salvation or hope through dangerous and improper means. He wanted to articulate an inability to relate to others, to personal relationships, religion, to fear of disease, which is a metaphor for a lot of things. I wanted to address not just anger, but tension. So... And I, I think he passed with flying colors you, okay. and getting anger and tension across yes. with this one. Yes. I would say those are, yeah, those are on there. All right. So I guess while we're still talking about like the creation and writing of the album, we can talk about who contributed to the album. Yeah. So we already talked about Flood, who produced this album. Right. This was his last collaboration with Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, I was, I was reading that. Mm-hmm. Did he and Trent have a disagreement that ended things? We'll talk about it when okay. we get to the the two never yeah. released recorded tracks. That's kind so. of a fucked up deal, but yeah. Yeah. So Alan Mulder uh, did some engineering work, mixing. Mi- yeah, mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, so did Sean Beaven, uh, Vrenna, Bill Kennedy, Brian Pollock, and John Aguto. I hope I'm saying these names right. Um, Chris Vrenna, as you mentioned, was credited with additional sampling and sound design. Can I say what he did? Yes. I'm sure you have the exact same information as me. Probably. probably. I've heard two things. Okay. I've heard in the Adam Steiner book, mm-hmm. he said Chris Vrenna was chief sampler, fast forwarding five movies a day, mm-hmm. 3,000 movies in total. Estimated, yeah. Do you know how many days that is of fast forwarding movies? <laughs> Did you do the... It's 600. Oh, that's... So less than two years. Yeah. But it's a... It's a bunch. I don't know how, <laughs> I can't speak to the accuracy of that, but he fast forwarded or went through many, many movies um, collecting samples. Uh, I want to say it's Keyboard Magazine. I have it somewhere, but said that uh, he listened to movies without watching them. So just, this makes sense to me, just listening for sounds, sound textures, mm-hmm. things like that. Not even watching the movie, but a lot of horror stuff, obviously, and, and being like, oh, that's an interesting sound yes. profile. Let's pull that out. Stuck it on DAP. That's digital audio tape, Jess. Okay. Um, and presented uh, DATs. I keep wanting to say DAT tape, which everyone says, but <laughs> yeah. that's like ATM machine. Yeah. Uh, you know, handed Trent a bunch of DATs and was like, here's all the samples, and then They'd go from there and load, you know, the s- screams of terror into the becoming or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's a whole process we'll get into later. But yeah. Yeah. So, so chief sampler. And apparently yes. he helped with drums too. Mm-hmm. He, he was a drum. He was a, a, a simple drummer. Uh, <laughs> upgraded to movie watcher, I guess. Yeah. Movie listener. So Adrian Ballou, who I hope we're saying that right again, of King Crimson 
Also worked with Frank Zappa, Bowie, Talking Heads, yeah. Tom Tom Club, Laurie Anderson. You name, you name a cool band. So a guitar virtuoso. Yeah, I think Trent has described him as the most awesome musician ever like, <laughs> in the world. Like it's just him. He's the best. Okay. And then Stephen Perkins, drummer for Jane's Addiction, probably met on Lollapalooza together. Came in and laid down some drums uh, that they could use to create sample like loops i don't know i don't know how that shit works samples loops uh, well okay yeah (laughs) what it said what it said in the um the essay and the the tds vinyl definitive edition Mm -hmm. called the end of music by john doran it said steve perkins provided raw drum patterns for sampling so he would play you know play a beat then they would just sample that beat and that way they could Chop distort and it, it and do whatever yeah. they want with Trent it. Trent had oh, this whole process where he'd put the things that were recorded onto hard disk, uh, put that through And this was so Pro early. Tools. like It was early versions of Pro Tools and a, a software by the people who made Pro Tools called TurboSynth. He was obsessed with this software throughout the making of TDS and did all sorts of manipulation to all the audio via turbo synth and so it, uh, guitar or drums would come out sounding like something else entirely after being chopped up and sampled in there but yeah the, this this album was done both on hard drive and on uh analog tape mm-hmm. so it was a combination of of those things probably one of the last not the last but that was probably one of the last big albums to do something like that right no it's just it's it's i mean how it, how common it, is it to record like that now if you have a budget people people worship analog tape Uh and so that's what that's what everybody wants to do it's just really expensive they still do it and studios with a budget still have tape machines but it's just so much easier and cheaper to put things on a hard drive now that that's what's most commonly done i know i guess for some reason i was thinking oh okay like it's probably not done very often just it, how kind of like, you know, movie theaters now have like digital projectors. You know, it's not the same kind of film yeah. projector that you had. It's not done as often, of course. And mm-hmm. It's more rare. but yeah. Just like it's it, rare it for never... film prints, you know, to yeah, exist. Yeah. It's like yeah. a Tarantino thing, I feel yeah, like. It's, it's kind of like, like that. Thing. But, you know, like the <clears throat> the the aficionados, the yeah. real film appreciators, they still have a, a uh, film projector. And just like many studios still have tape machines. Um, we could talk about the artwork, getting that kind of move. Um, or do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, on 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 Adrian Bellew, uh-huh. when they brought him in, they already had a lot of tracks mostly finished, I think. And he was encouraged to improvise over the tracks. And then, again, they chopped and <laughs> chopped and screwed. They sampled and cut up uh, what Adrian did, what he improvised uh, on TurboSynth and Pro Tools, um, the software. I wish I... I could pinpoint every instance of, of his doing that. I think Mr. Self-Destruct is the only one that says in the liner notes that he provides guitars, but I know he does it on more than one track. Do you know anything about that? I thought we would talk about that when we got to each song, so <laughs> okay. I didn't include right. that in That's my fine. pages and pages of notes. It's Sorry. very, very apparent on Mr. Self-Destruct, yes. but I think it's elsewhere, too. We'll get to it. So, um, artwork. The whole thing that Reznor wanted was... He wanted to create like an, a level of arm's length mystique and he didn't want it to be like the Trent Reznor band, right? He didn't want a picture of himself on oh the cover Could of the imagine? album. Please never do that, Trent. I mean, he's too old now. 
<laughs> He's like, I want to leave something to the imagination, which I think is actually a good way to play it. Best uh, Beatles album cover is the White Album, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, and that they were going in a different direction. Uh, so like Russell Mills, it was more abstract. The Downward Spiral Russell Mills artwork is some of the most abstract album art I've maybe ever seen. Yeah. Um, it's so disconnected from, I don't want to say disconnected, but it's just like, what is mm-hmm. this yeah. craziness? Yeah. So Russell Mills, a uh, British artist, he has done album covers previously, right? Like he did one for a Harold Budd and Brian Eno collaboration in 84 called The Pearl. He also did Japan album art for Exercising Ghosts. And if you look these up, like you can tell, like this is I want to see the Eno real quick. Okay. Yeah, The Pearl, it's like a, it's just like a textural, Mm -hmm. very abstract thing with a red line running down it. And it's it's probably another collage type thing, which mm-hmm. is what Russell Mill does, I guess, collage work. Yeah. Look up Japan exercising ghosts. Okay. And that's exorcising, like demons. <laughs> oh, okay. Not exercising like workout. You know, like ghosts doing a workout, yeah. doing CrossFit. Ghosts doing CrossFit. Um, yeah, this one is, it's also just a really textural, uh, <laughs> once again, abstract textures. Mm-hmm like blacks and reds and i don't know it looks like he painted on some concrete or something i have no clue yeah, what it is right? but yeah. yeah like a very interesting canvas i guess mm-hmm. we can maybe put up some pictures of these um on our instagram or something but you can look mm-hmm. them up because we have amazing uh portable computers <laughs> wow <laughs> so um Mills was hired after a very brief phone call and a quick meeting with Reznor in L.A., and he was given instructions. One instruction was, do not make anything that resembles previous Nine Inch Nails artwork. And he... <laughs> I, I don't think there was any... Like, connect I, this cover art to Pretty Hate Machine. I don't think they had to worry about <laughs> the, about Russell Mills accidentally making something that looked like previous art. <laughs> yeah, You know what I mean? Yeah. It definitely did not. And then he was given some keywords to think about as he Ooh, created art, I right? I don't know what these are. Can I guess any? Try. Wax. No. Feathers. No. Okay. I, think more abstract. Uh, cockroach. Okay. Ab- abstract. <laughs> You're naming like concrete uh, okay. things Ru- that I can touch and feel. Rust. Decay. Decay. Yes. Oh, I'm. Ooh, I bet I could be good at this game. Okay. Try again. Did he? How many things did he give him? There are seven that I have listed here. So decay was one, but rust was not? No. Um, is it all like, uh, okay, abstract nouns like that. Um, machinery. No. God, uh, destruction? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm really bad at this. Pig, piggy. No. Um, rot? No, that kind of is the same as decay. Though. Okay, give me one hint and then I'll stop this stupid game. Okay, um... When you're not sure of something, when you're uncertain. Okay, okay, you're just saying it. Uncertainty? <laughs> yeah, uncertainty, yes. Okay. Okay, no, tell me what the others are. Organic. Oh, okay, it is organic looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, lost dreams. Oh, well, that's like two words, so. Okay, well, I'm sorry. These are grouped together. I would Broken put... promises. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Temptations. I... I put the previous things under the heading hopelessness, which is like a theme of Nine Inch Nails, period. 
Yeah. And attrition is the other keyword. Okay. So Mills created, I think it was around 30 pieces of art for the album that was used all throughout like the downward spiral cycle. So you've got like the album cover art, you've got the inner art, you've got like closure, you've mm-hmm. got the singles, like it was just oh, yeah. the, the theme was kept. I mean, I think, I mean, Joseph Coltis also did some photography work, but the theme was mostly Mills. Um, and he said that... The organic prevailing over or feeding into industrial is a common theme in my work, generally, and in this instance was particularly apt for the art required. Bandages soaked in wax, paint, and blood that represents healing, but also signifies and conceals injury formed a background for the twisted metal and crooked branches that became paradoxically more beautiful in decay as the elements of water and air had played upon them, producing the intricate colorings of rust. Added to there this, we go, rust. That, that was my word. <laughs> added to this were insects, moths, and the remnants of webs, all beautiful and marvelous, even in death. Um, and when he started working on the album, he didn't even listen to it. So he wow. didn't really know. I can't imagine the artwork any other way, though. Like, no, I know that sounds like... No, I couldn't either. But yeah, I can, al- I can also believe that the person creating it was not listening to the album. There's a... Not in a bad way, but there's a disconnect. But it, it also, there? it fits. It's so abstract that it seems disconnected, but also it fits the album exactly in a weird way. Well, I mean, it's sense. it's layers of like organic material, right? Like he works yeah. in layers, he works in collages. Dead moths. And then we're talking about layers of sound and layers and just, of... And you know, Reznor feeds organic material into computers mm-hmm. and fucks with it so whether it be his voice guitar playing drums uh any anything else he pulls from wherever yeah um, so the cover art that you're holding there in your hands yeah i'm looking at it now. it's called wound mm-hmm. and um mill said that he said I had been thinking about making works that dealt with layers physically, materially, and conceptually. I wanted to produce works that were about both exposure and revealing, and at the same time dealt with closure and covering. Given the nature of the lyrics and the power of the music I was working with, I felt justified in attempting to make works that alluded to the apparently contradictory imagery of pain and healing. I wanted to make beautiful surfaces that partially revealed the visceral rawness of open wounds beneath. And um, the inner cover, so that... Uh, I'm looking for the teeth and the salt trails. Oh, this is one of my favorite parts. Uh, is it that? Yes. So that one is, um, human. Is it human teeth? (laughs) Maybe. There's teeth. It's called future echoes. Oh yeah. So for the 10th anniversary, when they did like the deluxe edition of the downward spiral, Rob Sheridan got to go and re-photograph like the original art. And was talking about how that's why over the past like ten years the art had I mean it's it's made of organic material it was decaying. So I actually have the 2004 edition in front of me, mm-hmm. and the original. Okay. Um, and yeah, they Rob Sheridan's in the liner notes for the the 2004 version. Uh-huh. And and I was wondering like what did he do? But it's dark. It's darker. See mm-hmm. how one he was is talking darker? about how it's darker. Right. Like it had gotten like maybe there's more rust, like it had been exposed to like, you know, that's crazy. Yeah. You can really see that it, it it's yeah. aged and decayed a bit. That's yeah. fucking wild. I he, didn't yeah. He was that. talking about how it's just kind of like this strange feeling of how he was f- like photographing like 
something that he described as the perfect visual metaphor for something old becoming new, right? So you have all these old materials, but it changes. It's not like static art, right? Like this is art that's decaying and kind of living and changing. So Yeah, that's the nature of collage versus just a static photograph or even a painting. Um, Now I'm looking at the teeth and salt trail. The teeth and salt trail has dramatically aged from one to the next. Let me see. See if you can tell me which is... Oh, which is which? Which is which. Well, this is original. Yeah. Because it's in the tiny CD. So you handed me the original. But that's how it comes. Yes. So there are... Like in the newer version, there are more like lines and creases there. Yeah, like there. Crack, it's mm-hmm. cracked more. And yeah, the color has changed quite a bit. Again, it's darker, right? Like yeah, the trails, some of the trails don't even have the white tips anymore. Like they are completely rusted. Hmm. Look, compare the, the salt tops of the salt trails. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, like the rust uh, is so much more uh, pronounced. pronounced. Yeah. In the later ones, yeah, it's less white. It's more rust-colored. Yeah. God, that's wild. They need to bring a whole... We like to go to this art museum called Crystal Bridges. Mm-hmm. Some of the only culture we have nearby. <laughs> it's it's Walmart saying, hey, peasants, yeah, we're going to build you this beautiful, beautiful museum nestled yeah. in a gorgeous area of Arkansas. So that way you won't revolt against this right now. <laughs> right. <So the> little, <laughs> you can come for free and look at a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Us. Yeah. Um, and they they do get great works of art and great artists. Mm-hmm. They need to bring a whole Russell Mills exhibition. I would die. It's American though. It's American art, so that will never. Oh, happen. that's that's its whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Fucked up. Yep. Anyway, maybe they'll make an exception. <laughs> There's got to be some exceptions in yep. there somewhere. Anyway, it was made for an American client. recording artist, right? Yeah. 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 Very yeah. famous American. Could do like of, a beautiful like album art right. um, exhibit. I think Rob, I call him Rob Sheridan, has just photographed it better. The detail is better. Well, you have probably better cameras. <laughs> yes and no. I mean, I mean, just maybe the digital camera maybe can pick up things differently if that's what he's using. It also may be better printed. Printed. Mm-hmm. But I believe him when he said it had uh, changed a lot. Yeah. It definitely, I, I don't think those are tricks of light or have anything to do with the processing. But printing is part of it, but it's, yes. I think it's more that it's decayed. Okay, sorry. Okay, so uh, there are two, just going to talk about two possible missing songs from this album and the falling out with Flood. So one of the songs is called Just Do It. Nike. <laughs> That's exactly, it was... Bad. All Trent said was Nike in the microphone. Bad title. Flood because... said no. <laughs> okay, no. Uh, just do it. It was a song that Flood was adamantly opposed to. It was removed from the track listing because Flood felt it went too far with what Trent was trying to convey. Flood and... heard Big Man with a Gun and was like, <laughs> all right, all right. Uh-huh. And then here, That's fine. How fucking bad was this song, Just Do It? The how... lyrics were, just do it. Nobody cares at all. Okay. That's As not, in just, that's, just kill yourself. Like That's not all that different from the rest of the album. It's if, not all. I mean, for me, it's like what I what separates it from the actual track, The Downward Spiral? You know where. Nothing can stop me now because I don't care anymore. Said over and over. Yeah. 
you know, every every word maybe, of Big Man with a Gun is more I think offensive. maybe it's placement on the album. I mean, we've never heard it. I don't even know if it's been yeah, officially I don't recorded. Think it, I, it, I don't think it has a real recording. It would have been leaked by now if it if existed. If it had. Well, yeah. remember earlier, I think it was this summer where they posted like, you yes. can buy the closure laser disc. So one of the things they posted was a reptile cassette single, Fucked which up. never existed. But on side B was just do it. What a sick twisted joke, joke to put just do it as the b-side yeah uh so the other song is a song called the beauty of the drug it was mentioned by trent in a uk interview and people kind of speculate that it may or may not be referring to like an early version of the perfect drug what was the title again the beauty of the drug okay yeah i i read about this too or if it's referring to the beauty of being numb which is on um yeah further down the spiral maybe maybe a little of both i don't know but yeah yeah so, um, can we take a quick break so I can get something to drink? Yeah. I've just got a couple more things okay. to go through. We've got an hour 20. Oh, my God. Okay. we're back and we're back and we're back (laughs) so i guess we can talk about the kind of like maybe what was going on uh music wise at that time you mean march 8 1994 that's right the the day that the downward spiral the day the world went away (laughs) wait that's not that album okay so it um debuted at number two, whenever it was released, it sold almost 120,000 copies. Its first week, it was Damn. released on the same day as Soundgarden's Super Unknown. And I will never forgive Soundgarden <laughs> for taking the number one spot. <laughs> so my question is, you want to try to guess the other 10? Fun little game. Let's I guess the other eight. Box office game. It's okay. like box office game. Okay. I'm going to get I'm gonna get my little ding sound effect ready. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there it is. Okay. The Are we going to do this in order? Like, should I start? Albums? Should I start at ten and make you guess and work your way down? Or just... we're not doing that. Okay, just if get, I just get, get if it. I get anywhere near the okay. ten, well, you already Are know the, what number one is because these we... were the best-selling albums of that week. Yes. So they weren't albums that were released that week necessarily. I mean, they had to have been because Soundgarden and Nine Inch Nails were topping it, and it was the yeah. But if something released that week is often it's not more all like... it's not all just releases that okay. week. So is TLC even on the list? <laughs> No. Um, I feel like TLC came out that fall yeah, or later I, that I'm summer. probably way off on that. I'm probably not going to get this. Um, Ace of Base on mm-hmm. there still? Number three. Nine Inch Nails knocked them out of the number two spot. Uh, fucking awesome. The, mm-hmm. And they'd been on, they'd been up there for a long time because mm-hmm. that album's from 93. Mm-hmm. And it's an all-time seller. Uh, <laughs> so okay. good. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's one of the best-selling okay. Swedish records of all time. Yeah. Um, a lot of solo R&B women. Oh, this was. Was it Tony Braxton Tony Braxton, there? self-titled album, yep. Uh, Whitney Houston? Uh, no, but like... Someone in that vein. Maybe Janet our, Jackson? Our generation's Whitney? It depends. I don't know. Our generation's Whitney isn't I Janet guess. Jackson? I guess our generation's Whitney is probably Whitney, so I don't know yeah, why yeah. I said that. We're not like We're not, Zoomers. Yeah. Um, just a very famous uh, solo female singer. Celine was kind of sweet... Oh, Celine Dion. Yeah, but I wouldn't consider her R&B, but yes, she is on there. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's another R&B that I'm not getting? Mm-hmm. I, f- I forget who the hell was even. Mariah Carey, music Oh, box. of course. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Of course. And there's this a- was not the, the time for dark industrial <laughs> shit, was it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, another popular one. This is a male R&B artist who is a certified, well, he's on trial right now. Let's put it that way. Oh. And he, he's known for writing horny songs. 94 yeah. is the year of horny. Oh, and this is okay. another horny popular song. We know, we know it's song. R. Kelly. It's R. Kelly, yes. His album, 12 Play. Um, a rapper who is a protege of Dr. Dre. A rapper. Well, it's not Eminem. <laughs> no. Too early. Uh-huh. A protege of Dr. Dre. Yeah. I'd consider him a protege. He rapped on his first album, The Chronic. I feel dumb now. Um, Snoop? Snoop. Okay. Yep. Uh, and there's an alt-pop act on here. Our friend Josh likes to sing. One time he left a voicemail for me where he oh, sang this fucking, song. Oh, uh, Counting Crows. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then one is a Pure Moods group. Uh, oh, was it Enya? No, group. Enigma? Yes. Enya, oh, yeah, Enya's, I guess Enya's a person. Yep. So for fun, do you just want to try to guess the top singles of that week? I mean, a lot of them are obviously going to overlap with what you just singles? said. Singles? Was uh-huh. it a Mariah Carey on there? Yeah, Without You. Ace of Base, The Sign, Bump and Grind, R. Kelly, Damn. Celine Dion, The Power of Love, What a Man, Salt and Pepper. I had that nice. single. I, I know you did. I did. And I also, my mom bought me the, um, I had the cassette too at some point of Very Necessary. I loved that album. Um, All for One, So Much in Love. I also had that cassette. Gosh, I was the biggest dork. Um, a Richard Marks song I don't know called Now and Forever. Um, St. Dolly Dog's Gin and Juice. Us three had wow. Cantaloupe, Flip Fantasia, and then Tony Braxton with Breathe Again. Wow. So that was so yeah. what no, pop soundscape looked nothing like. nothing else like, not a lot of other stuff that sounded like uh, TDS was in the mainstream no. soundscape, at least. Yeah. Of course, in underground, sure. Uh, so Reznor did not expect any kind of commercial success from the album. He didn't even think that it would recoup the recording costs. Like he was like, there's no way that this album will move copies. Well, can we talk about why just briefly? It's an ugly and difficult album. Yes. It's a fucking amazing album. It's an ugly and difficult album that doesn't have got moments of beauty. Of course it does. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, have songs that sound like singles that will be successful except maybe closer but it, it's a six and a half minute weird i mean it's more instrumental than it is yeah like... it's it and it, it's like a long form you know like a club dance song but it put through this like filter of the shit piss filter you know i think i've heard it described as like death disco yeah sure yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely yeah mm. um and also the the lyrical content yeah and it has the f word a bunch yeah you don't think a song whose chorus is i want to fuck you like an animal it's gonna climb the charts we'll have plenty of time to I was going to go off on uh, what Closer is about, but we will have whole whole episodes Yes, that'll be fine. So um, whenever he was talking to USA Today, he was like, it's the most uncommercial record that's ever been in the top 50. Okay. If you're not ready for it, it's terrible. It's noise. On a couple listenings, if you get that far, you hear through the distractions and find a beauty under the surface ugliness. Who said that? I'm sorry. Reznor. Okay. He was just talking about his own. Mm-hmm. Well, it is entirely true. 
I mean, it sounds a little up his own ass because he's talking about his own music, but is there's no lie there, you mm-hmm. know? And he said the same thing about Broken, not necessarily like the beauty of it, but that it'll hook you and you'll come back. And yeah, you'll more. you'll keep finding mm-hmm. more and more things underneath. And yes, what he, I mean, what he said's accurate. Yeah, he's our Phil Spector, you know? Our Phil Spector. Yeah. Well, yeah, with, well, yeah, people, have, I think we've talked about how people have used the term wall of sound for both Spector and Reznor, but Spector is like the bubblegum wall of sound. And Reznor is the sh- shit wall of <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the wall of shit and piss. The wall of shit. Yeah. So um, Alan Mulder in an oral history in The Fader said that he was surprised that The Downward Spiral sold so many copies. It's a challenging listen. For that to sell 4 million albums is pretty impressive, you know? Is it that the w- total now? I think it's at 5 million now. Um, Quintuple platinum, huh? Yeah. It was more eerie and a bit more warped than you'd expect from general popular music. Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, so why was it successful? One of Steiner's, and I've heard other people kind of talk about this too, is that it is very opposite from like live grunge era recordings, right? Like this is studio worked, you know, whereas the main style in rock at that time was this idea of a live recording, you know, grunge, just guitar, bass, yeah, this drums. Had come, this had come not long after Nirvana's In Utero, which has a famous sound. Um, if you want to learn more, more about it, listen to my other podcast, Discography. <laughs> I'm not going to go into it here. Uh, but I bring it up because Trent compares himself to that a lot. Um, people were talking about, uh, you know, like the whole Albini sound on that one. Just recording a band live. Mm-hmm. What you hear is what you get. We're not going to mess with it much. We're definitely not going to put it into any computers. Yeah. yeah. And Steiner described it as his sound and process at the time. How it was so opposite was, was because Reznor was building big, heavily processed sounds into an awesome wave to establish a new sonic extreme. Wow. Yeah. Got away with, uh, with words. Yeah, he's- Good writer. (laughs) But he also said that another thing might be the question of timing of when it came out, right? So it arrived at what was perhaps the peak of grunge and what we didn't know was the beginning of its ending with the suicide of Cobain, like just a month later. Less than a month later, uh, Kurt Cobain died, which is adds another layer of just shittiness to the whole thing and he pointed out that and i've thought about this too he said it's surprising that cobain's death did not draw a greater comparison with nine inch nails music and trent reznor himself but as the star of that generation had burnt itself out through drug addiction reznor set a different example using anger as resistance to condemn depression and suicide huh. but also my thought was would well obviously this album was popular i mean it was number two mm-hmm. i would say it was like diehard fans who went out and bought it you know um, it, and, and, and he had collected more fans along the way, you know, like with Broken and, yeah. and, um, and people who had just heard March of the Pigs and were like, wow, that fucks. Yeah. I, so <laughs> gotta get that pig record. So, uh, you know, that's usually who runs out and buys it the first week, unless there's like a huge single. Um, and for me, I was like, I wondered if this would have had, or at least the single hurt would have had as much of a cultural like resonance at the time had it not been that Cobain had oh had killed himself because I feel like that yeah it like mental health was in like its early phases of people just beginning to talk about it in general openly you know like in the 80s and 90s like it wasn't 
It was gaining some momentum. I mean, yeah. people had talked about it for a long time. A long time, but it was still uh, in its infancy, and yes. it still is. It still is, honestly. But it, especially in music, like I feel. Yeah. Um. I guess it was. Like Kurt Cobain wasn't afraid to say, "Like I hate myself and I want to die." Like these are. Right. He was saying it in a, in a different way. I feel like than Reznor was, in more like sarcastic. I don't know. There's different moods to the two different people, but yeah, I get your meaning. Yeah. I just, I honestly want to find, and I know there's got to be someone out there who's written a book or a thesis or something about like the uh, expression of like mental health and music and where it kind of began and yeah, became something that was addressed openly by rock stars and pop stars, yeah. you know, um, because it, it really wasn't for a long time. I don't think Led Zeppelin ever had a song that was like... I'm s- I'm sad and I want to die. I think <laughs> like, some of these these old rockers did have stuff about that, like I'm all just fucked up in the brain, maybe, but they just phrased it in really different ways. I'm trying to think of example, like what is what is Purple Haze about? <laughs> it's probably just about being drugs? horny. It's about being horny and doing drugs. Uh, so maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm off base there. But, um, I guess our era was the era, you know, like uh, like our, our boomer parents had the era of like drugs and psychedelic and that kind of experimentation and yeah, um, and punk and that kind of and like nihilism and that kind of thing. If you had cool parents, I don't know. My mom was not into that kind of stuff, but yeah, my parents were not. Um, our generation had <laughs> people just singing just about like, how I'm fucking sad up. they are. <laughs> And that's that's still going. Oh um, no, it totally is. Almost thirty years later, that's the main thing of music. I feel like now. I mean, you listen to Olivia Rodrigo, and she's just like, "My mental health is so bad, y'all." Mm-hmm. That's what my pop song is about. Yeah. Or as I'm trying to think of pop songs, and a lot of them are just like, "I'm sad, my boyfriend left me." Like it just seems like it really kind of started maybe like in the '80s and '90s. But I I can't. Mm-hmm. The '90s brought it like mainstream. Um, but I, I really don't know well enough. I, I'm sure, like I said, someone's done like some major research out there and I would love to get my hands on it and read through it. Cause I think that's an interesting yeah. subject. Um, I don't know yeah. if there is someone. Yeah. But I've always wondered if, if hurt would have resonated as much with people had Cobain not killed himself and have, have I mean, Maybe and not. there were, you know, crossover fans, obviously. And the timing was, um, I don't want to say the timing was right. The timing was wrong or something, but there was timing involved there that had a big effect on it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, do you want to talk about some reviews? Yeah, let's, let's, uh, I was looking, I, I was just kind of looking at overviews and uh-huh. lots of good stuff. Uh-huh, lots of, uh, Insane stuff. <laughs> Enemy shit all over it. I mean, it was mostly good, right? Am I am I wrong there? Select shit all over it. I know that for sure. I didn't write down enemies stuff because I didn't read it. Uh, mostly good. Even Pitchfork. So Pitchfork reviewed the reissue in 2004. Yes. So. What'd they say? They were able to have like hindsight on the album. You know what I mean? Because Oh, like the hindsight coming... where they gave Fragile a 2.0 and then later they gave, gave it a it, 9. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, but they never reviewed this in, in 94 because right. obviously Pitchfork did not exist. exist. Yep. So anyway, it was reviewed by Rob Mitchum. They gave it an 8.3. Not, and they, he always said, Pitchfork always says snark, you know, I, I just think a lot of like critical writing on music is so funny when you read it. Um, yeah. Just the way they try to be snarky or very pretentious. Anyway, I don't like it when writers make it about themselves. I really because I really don't care <laughs> about. Uh, it depends.
depends on the writer. Some writers have really good personalities. So, yeah, maybe. If you win me over. But if you yeah. haven't won me over, I'm not going to care about your I don't know. I kind of like some people who write memoirs about songs and the meanings to them. But like, I, I'll write. I'll read a book if I want that, though. If I just want to Yeah, okay. You. I understand. But there are different critical theories and ways of approaching things. So, oh, anyway. Okay. Um, anyway, Mitchum said, here's the 10th anniversary of the downward spiral to remind me that the postal service are just nine inch nails in a better mood. <laughs> oh my God. Well, not that much of a better mood, but I do see what he means. <laughs> yeah. Um, he said that Re- Reznor had his album dramatics down pat at the time, chasing the brutal big man with a gun with a warm place. The closest thing a teenager got to Eno in that era. Yeah. God, that's, that's correct. Yes. Like. I never even thought about that. No, it's it's totally and true. And we were just about talking it. about Eno working with Reznor and how it didn't happen. Yeah. But yeah, it's a very Eno-y instrumental track. Mm-hmm. But it was also stolen from Bowie. Anyway. <laughs> sure. Um, so Rolling Stone gave it four stars. Uh, it was behind a paywall and I wasn't going to pay for that shit. So. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I didn't check Google well, to see if I could find the it. The review but was good. Four stars, guys. I think now like in the album reviews... Like, they have a book that they update every once in a while. It has five. So, huh. yeah. Um, people, this is a funny... Oh, my God. A guy named Peter Castro reviewed it for People, and he wrote... I don't know why he wrote this, because I do not think it sounds this way at all, but you have to explain this to me. So, yeah. he okay. said, People, known for their hard-hitting music journalism, oh, by yeah. the way. <laughs> okay. So, he said, It's hard to imagine how an album that sounds as if it were recorded on an active airport runway could be captivating, but that's what this disc loudly achieves. Well... I I respect that a little bit. Okay. I mean, where are you going to find great industrial noise if not on an airport runway? <laughs> like that's not not totally off base. Mm. So it's a good review. Then. I think it's like yeah. I mean, he said it was captivating, but it's uh, I think it's dismissing that there's more sonic effort into it than. Uh, yeah, maybe yeah. it's okay. maybe not the best way to word it, uh, but yeah, he, he takes industrial ugliness and makes mm-hmm. something very compelling. Yes. So, um, New York Times, John Perales. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. I don't know. And I feel really bad. I just never heard a lot of these people's names pronounced. It's okay, I can't even say Adrian <laughs> Bellew. <laughs> it's probably Adrian Blue. Adrian Blue. I just think of the fucking bear from the Jungle Book. Yeah. So I. My mind doesn't want to say Baloo. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I see the E there, and I'm like, it's Baloo. Okay. So, yeah. Um, he said, what separated Reznor from groups like Ministry and Nitzer Ebb is his inclusiveness. In the 1990s, too many bands equate integrity with choosing a niche and staying there. Reznor has other plans. He's not afraid to sound too pop, too dance-oriented, too industrial, too techno, too hard rock. Reznor writes full-fledged tunes. He knows his way around melodic hooks, not just riffs. That's very true. I think that's accurate. Mm-hmm. So, um, should we? I'm going to read a couple of bad ones, and then I'm going to read my favorite. Okay. Is NME in there? I do not have enemies pulled up. Well, I, I, I think what they gave it was two stars or something. That sounds right. It's so, um, Select. I've never even heard of this magazine or <laughs> website. I don't know what the f this is. Everyone um, loved Select. <laughs> I had a subscription to select. Sorry, that was mean. Some people probably did. Um, anyway. I've never heard of it. Andrew Perry wrote, it's the kind of sad two-dimensional take on life you'd expect from an early adolescent goth. Okay. Wait, Unlike, what? say, Polly Harvey's vision of pain, it's not humane. It's not mad. It's just stupid. Okay. That's one way to look. <laughs> okay. Yeah. If you looked, if you took the lyrics 
disembodied and just if you only read the lyric booklet and did not listen to the music, maybe you could think that. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. So here is um, Robert Criscow. Oh, here we go. According to the site, he's the Dean of American Art Critics. Also, what he wrote is the biggest mishmash of word salad. I don't understand it, and if, someone yeah. has to explain it to me. For the, if you're uninitiated, Chris Gow is a um, famously hated music critic. <laughs> hated by musicians, hated by fans. Probably hated by other critics. Oh, I'm sure he is. Okay. Just a guy who no one likes. So he said, musically, Hieronymus, am I staying there right? Hieronymus Bosch? I think so. Okay. Musically, Hieronymus Bosch as post-industrial atheist. Lyrically, Transformers as kitty porn. I don't know what this means. Two stars. He wrote kitty porn in his review. I think this man is a bad person, maybe. <laughs> like, what Lyrically, the fuck? Transformers as kitty porn. I don't get it. This doesn't... Okay, this is... He, he, I it's think, literally just word salad I that makes brain, no sense. His brain was stroking out as he, as he was writing it. So let's just forget mm, him. Yeah. It's like when early Pitchfork writers like put slurs in their... They're like, I'm uh, being transgressive. <laughs> Andrew WK, you get no stars. Um, <laughs> but later on, we'll come back and give you a, like a, a nine right, when we right. realize that all the cool like, kids oops, like you. Um, please forget that we said uh, <laughs> we said the R I don't word. Think, did they actually give him a zero? I thought they gave him a point one. It, it was like a or a one point oh or something. A point four or something really low. They gave Liz Fair a zero for her pop album. A zero? Mm-hmm. And the critic has come out and apologized for yeah, it. Yeah, you can't give something a zero if I'm it pretty sure. Hold on. It was like incredibly low. It sounds like someone who was just... Uh, like, if you turn in the assignment, you don't get a zero unless you turn in a blank page. Even if I hate the artist in the album, I'm not going to give it a zero because that just doesn't make sense. 0.0 Liz Fair self-titled wow. pop album. This includes Yeah, you can't do This that. is someone who is just disappointed that their indie queen artist was writing blowjob songs for the masses instead of just for him. That's what this that's what the review comes <laughs> it's, it's to. Like, it's like instead of sounding like I recorded it in a closet, you know, mm-hmm. on a four-track player like I I had mm-hmm. big pop hooks, I worked with the Matrix, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. She has even said I needed money. Like I've yeah. got a child. Right. I have to pay fucking bills. You know what sells? Pop music. You know what doesn't sell? Me writing confessional things with just my little acoustic guitar in a lo-fi recording studio. Like, that doesn't sell. Why do you think Trent's doing Pixar? Why is he doing Mank? He's putting five, <laughs> six, seven children through college. <laughs> college educations for dozens of children. Why do you think Mary Queen's always modeling hoodies? They have to sell hoodies. Or they're, of course they're, she looks hot, but also. Their hundreds of kids can't eat unless they sell hoodies, people. So Okay. So anyway, I want to read my favorite review, and it's by Ann Powers. She's one of my favorite music critics. This was for Spin mm-hmm. um, in 1994. I actually have this issue. It's Funnily mm-hmm. enough, it's the issue with Courtney Love on the cover. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, but she's a great music critic, and... Um, I listened to another podcast called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, and she was a guest on the episode for Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You, and it's a great episode, so definitely listen to it. Anyway, she writes, 
Guitars smashed down with the force of an assembly line accident. Synth effects simulate bullets or a bee swarm. Keyboards repeat themselves in sonic water torture. Vocals jump from a whisper to a scream. Yet Reznor also knows the value of a caress. He understands that after the basic catharsis it offers, pure aggressive noise numbs, and he always wants to pierce another layer. Which is why, amid the static, Reznor throws in the sweetness of a melody or a soft piano riff. He wants you to relax as he inserts the spike. Oh, God. She, okay, she was too a little too horny maybe when she wrote it. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think, think she's a good but critic. I've... And she wrote, um, it is Trent Reznor's gift and his act of courage to take us to a place beyond help and to show us that in the darkness we still feel. Damn. Yeah. Well, accurate. Yeah. Uh, real quick, just some um, accolades. So Rolling Stone has put the Downward Spiral in its 500 greatest albums of all time, three times at least. So in 2003, <laughs> it was ranked at 200. In 2012, for some reason, it went to 201. And in 2021, <laughs> it was 122. So it oh, went up. Oh, jumped. Okay. Mm-hmm. Spin named it number 10 in its 125 best albums of the past 25 years. It was included in the book 1001 Albums to Hear Before You Die. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like an aggregate thing called Acclaimed Music. And according to like all the like lists of all time, this is the 165th most acclaimed album of all time based on its appearance and lists. Hmm. Um, Grammy nominations. The Downward Spiral was nominated for Best Alternative Performance and Hurt for Best Rock Song. Did not win. I have a very strong memory of watching those Grammys because I was in the hospital with meningitis. Oh, God. That was when I was recovering. I was literally in a hospital bed watching the Grammys with my mom. And I remember Alanis Morissette winning everything. It was literally like oh, that was the she ju- was she was literally like Billie Eilishing it, like holding <laughs> the Grammys she and embarrassed. Eilishing. You know what I mean? Like just was really she really how young was she? She would have been pretty young, like 22 or three. She was young. Okay. Like, I think when Jagged Little Pill came out, she was like 21 or 22. Yeah. But OK. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't Billie Eilish's. No, youth. but still very young. Yes. Uh, yeah, and uh, that was the jagged little pill year. Mm-hmm. So, what else on on our downward well, spiral prologue before we? The only thing that I want to say is, I believe in around 2000, Trent was being interviewed, and he said, "I'd love it if 20 years from now, one of my records is referenced, like Talking Heads' Remain in Light or David Bowie's Low." And then he kind of gave one of his Trent quips, which was about how shitty current music is when he just said in the 70s, music was still looked at more as art than as product. Um, Kind of a thing he still talks about, right? Like how albums were art. They weren't Mm -hmm. just products. And the commodification of art and music just has increased exponentially since, since the 90s even. So... And I would, I, I would say he met that goal, right? I mean... You see, yes, people wearing downward spiral T-shirts. You see, you know. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, it crosses genres like hip hop artists and rock artists. There you is see. a commodification of the downward spiral T-shirt, but that's a whole other. It doesn't issue. mean that people didn't like it. <laughs> no, I mean people do talk of it now as an all-time classic album. Yes. So it's it's classic rock now. Like what when we were kids, what we would have considered classic rock. This is <laughs> the equivalent, I guess. So this is like the wall. This is like when I discovered like, I don't know, Depeche Mode or some shit. Like early Depeche Mode. <laughs> what? Like just can't get enough? What do you... I don't know. I'm trying to think of what the equivalent would be. I don't know. Like, a, like okay, 1996. 
I guess it'd be like when I went through my brief doors phase, like every girl goes through, because Jim Morrison is hot, and then you realize, eh. And then you realize this band sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, no one's no one's arguing that it's a, a classic. No one's going to deny that. Yeah. So I'm just going to say he achieved his goals of having an album referenced maybe in the same way people are like, yeah, Fear of Music, man. <laughs> it's a good album. Yeah. And people look at Woodstock 94 or maybe the performance like they look at uh, Stop Making Sense or something. You know, like it's a, an all-time great. Even Stop, <laughs> Stop Making Sense is... Not quite the same because it's a, it's a documentary film and mm-hmm. it's a composite. It was also recorded over three nights and also had a professional director, Jonathan Demme, at the helm. So Anyway. <laughs> I said composite, uh-huh. but you started going. Yeah. Um, you know what else was a composite concert film? And all that could have been. I, I'm total tangent, but. It worked. If it weren't for Rob, if it weren't for Robin Fink's hair, they would totally pull it off. Um, so what else? What can people expect from our mini series? Well, on the downward spiral, we're gonna go next. I guess the next time you hear us, we're gonna start on the main feed. We're gonna start going through the songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So get ready for Mister Self Destruct, baby. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, we're gonna divide it up by sides of the vinyl. Um, that way we can go into depth on the songs. Maybe you'll find some cool, like, stems and shit. Oh, I will have plenty of stems. Well, okay. stems for some songs. Other mm-hmm. songs, I will pull things out of the 5.1 surround yeah. mixes. We um, can also talk about, like, uh, themes, overarching themes, song meaning or interpretation and the wrong way that things have been interpreted. Um, Background. The controversy of things like Big Man with a Gun. Uh, That was a whole big thing in the 90s. Yeah. Um, People, uh, here's a, people mistook it for a rap (laughs) song or people who wanted to talk about it and use it as a, a, a political tool went around saying it was a gangster rap song because they didn't know what it was. They didn't know. They just saw the printed lyrics or something? They were trying, like, politicians and shit. Well, I know. And and culture warriors who wanted to go on tirade. like Loris Tucker and I think William Bennett, those kind of people. These people who wanted to go on tirades against Mm -hmm. uh, the black people's music. They would sometimes lump big man with a gun into uh, into their rants by accident. Okay. Well, we'll uh, talk about it when we get to it. We don't need to go into it now. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Uh, we'll have bonus ups. Um, yeah. About all the other stuff Trent was working on. We're going to have episodes about Natural Born Killers. Woodstock uh, 94, baby. Woodstock 94. Quake. Um, closer. Behind closer the scenes. Closer the video. I've even thought about doing like a Nothing Records history. Yeah. Things like that. So that's going to be in the bonus feed. But yeah, this will probably be several episodes. So and? it'll probably take us to uh, fall and then we might have to take a mental health break or I might go insane. We will. We will really, <laughs> for so many reasons, have to take a mental health break. Yeah. Uh, but don't worry. We'll get you, we'll get you through to at least a, the perfect drug, which is where we can decide that the downward spiral era ends, right? Well, actually, closure would be the last, right? Yeah, I would, I would say, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, I forgot that perfect drug was before closure. Yeah, just barely under the wire, maybe. Mm-hmm. So that's what's coming up. Awesome. 
Sorry if this was kind of a boring episode with no music, just me reading. I think it's fascinating facts stuff. And research. Okay. I'll stick some music in there. Good. I'll Hope- stick some new music that no one's ever heard at the beginning and the end and maybe in the middle. That'll be good. Okay. Thanks for sticking with us for two hours or whatever this ends up being. Yep. Thanks for your support. Oh, yeah. Pa- also, happy birthday to Creepy Crawly Co. <laughs> is, it, is it their birthday? Yes. It's it is the, today. The company or the person? The person. So if you want those bonus episodes we <laughs> talked about, go to patreon.com slash oxaudio. There'll be a link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And you can get all our bonus stuff and join us on Discord. You'll get an invite on Instagram and Twitter. The handle is at NailedPod. Mm-hmm. Tell your friends. Tell a friend, please leave an iTunes review. Mm-hmm. A five-star one. Maybe next time we'll read some five-star reviews. We've had some good ones. We should. We've through. had some very, very nice ones. And thank you to the people who left them because we have only good ones up there. Nobody's been mean. No baddies. No baddies. And that's great. Mm-mm. That's so nice. Yeah. Thanks for being so nice to us on social media and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, anything else? That's it. If you want to be on a nail bag episode, you can ask us anything. Hit us up at our email. It's nailedpod at gmail.com, right? Okay. If you want you want to send questions for our, our nail bag episode. Suggestions for bonus apps, et cetera. Yeah. Anything you want. But yeah, support us at Patreon if you want. Uh, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't belabor this anymore. So, Mm-mm. time to head out, buddy. I've been Blake. I'm Jessica. And didn't that make you feel better?